In Interior Castle 6, Teresa of Avila writes, A weak constitution usually causes some troubles, especially if the persons be of a tender nature and grieve about every trifle, which make them a thousand times more inclined to think that they are weeping for God, though it not be the case. It may also happen that a person from hearing the least word or from thinking upon God may shed abundance of tears and not be able to resist them, because there is some humor at the heart which tends more to produce this effect, and it seems she cannot stop weeping. Such persons, having heard that tears are good, do not suppress them. They wish for nothing else, and therefore they increase them all they can. Teresa says that some tears are good and holy. Other tears are self-indulgent, or the result of emotional weakness. The opening paragraph of Emile Chiron's 1937 book Tears and Saints reads, As I searched for the origin of tears, I thought of the saints. Could they be the source of tears' bitter light? Who can tell? To be sure, tears are their trace. Tears did not enter the world through the saints, but without them we would never have known that we cry because we long for a lost paradise. Show me a single tear swallowed up by the earth. No, by paths unknown to us, they all go upwards. Teresa of Avila was a 16th century Carmelite mystic famous for her erotic, amorous love of Christ. Emile Chiron was a Romanian philosopher who lived between 1911 and 1995. Teresa is probably most well known for the hysterical sexuality of her ecstasy captured in marble by Bernini. She had visions, and she frequently levitated. Chiron's work largely deals in pessimism, in nihilism, in despair. He wrote a line I really loved when I was in graduate school. Sometimes I wish I was a cannibal, less for the pleasure of eating someone than for the pleasure of vomiting him. Despite the loveliness of the line, I genuinely hated the trouble of being born and was dreading the inevitability of reading Tears and Saints, fearing a tirade or something lazily indelicate. My patience with pessimism is low, so I picked up the book with great trepidation. Instead of despair, in the book he writes, we are the wounds of nature and God is doubting Thomas. He writes, my lord, I shall dredge tears from the gates of hell and make my home in them. He writes, to win the guilty kiss of a saint, I'd welcome plague as a blessing. So my dread becomes replaced with a sort of hysterical devotion. How could it be anything other? I've been trying to eat my way through this book in the tiniest of bites, worried a little that I will be unable to return from it. The book feels parallel to Bernini's ecstasy and that encountering it undoes you a little. At work. I have been rewriting curriculum for art projects that I will then take into elementary schools. In one of them, I have to introduce a piece called The Butcher's Lament. I think of the title of the work and of describing a lamentation to children as I read through the Chiron. My curriculum notes read, A butcher is someone who cuts meat for food. What is a lamentation? To lament means to express sadness or grief. Do you think butchers feel grief and sadness over the work that they do? In the late 1300s, there was an English woman named Marjorie Kemp who lamented so strongly, who wept so profusely that it became her enduring legacy. 
Hers is the first autobiography written in English, and every word is drenched in hysterical, unending tears. Marjorie was born around 1373 in Norfolk to a wealthy merchant family. She married at 20, and after her first pregnancy began to suffer with terrible visions. She saw demons who goaded her into taking her own life, taunted her for her sins. Agonized, Marjorie tore at her own skin, leaving her with lifelong scars. Jesus came to her during these visions, rescuing her from the demons and giving her comfort. Contemporary readings of Marjorie's life have suggested postpartum psychosis as the cause of the intensity of her unwellness, but I think this reading does not take into account the culture and belief systems of her age. For Marjorie, the possibility of temptation from a demon was a real thing, a, a tangible thing. So forgive me for choosing mostly to, to ignore this interpretation. For what it's worth, I, I don't really think it's the most important part of the story. Lynn Stanley writes for the University of Rochester that Kemp is remarkable because she is rooted in the world. She was married, a mother to at least 14 children, someone who was not stuffed away in a convent where she could ruminate on piety, but someone who went to the market and paid taxes. Unlike the blood-soaked and solitary wailing of the female saints, Marjorie lived a life that was shockingly domestic. And Marjorie was not converted after Jesus rescued her from her demonic postpartum visions. She continued her life, opening and closing to disastrous business ventures, and she kept having children, although it is unknown what became of them. But 15 years after her first vision, Marjorie had a second. And then she began to weep. Weeping is, Marjorie discovers, her divine calling. St. Jerome comes to her and tells her, It is a singular and special gift that God has given you, a well of tears which man shall never take from you. Jerome tells her that she is to weep for 15 years uninterrupted. In another vision, Jesus tells her to remove the hair shirt that she's been wearing, for he will place a hair shirt around her heart. Her contrition, as well as her tears, will be unending. After her children had finished being born, Marjorie sets an agreement with her husband that they could remain married, but should no longer have any sexual contact. And then she travels across England, Europe, and then the Middle East on religious pilgrimage. Marjorie weeps as she travels. She cries in Rome, in Jerusalem, in Prussia, in Compostela. She cries on the floors of cathedrals. She thrashes and wails at the feet of bishops and monsignors. During her visit to the Holy Land, Marjorie's tears turn into screams, which she describes as wallowing and wrestling with her body, quote, as if her heart would burst asunder, unquote. One Good Friday, she writes that she, quote, sobbed, roared, cried, and spreading wide her arms, said with a loud voice, I die, I die, unquote. At this incident, she was carried out of the church by a member of the clergy. In her autobiography, Marjorie says, speaking in the third person, the crying was so loud and so wonderful that it made people astounded, unless that they had heard it before, or else that they knew the cause of the crying. And she had them so oftentimes that they made her right weak in her bodily mites, and namely if she heard of our Lord's passion. Despite this, the obvious 
intensity of her devotion to Christ. Marjorie Kemp is decidedly not a saint. She's not blessed or venerable or beatified. She wailed across Europe, soaking the pilgrims' paths. Marjorie frightened clergy members with her writhing, her shrieking. In her autobiography, she only refers to herself as this creature, as she describes the depth of her sorrow and the many temptations of sin. Colin Dickey writes in Afterlives of the Saints that, quote, Marjorie's tears were too public, her motion indecorously shoved in the faces of the faithful. Her weeping was never the quiet, demure crying of a good lady martyr. She did not yoke herself to a powerful male figure, and she did not die pure. After her death, her body did not lie uncorrupted, proof of her pure negation of the natural world. Marjorie could not make of herself a symbol. Unquote. Despite the church's rejection of Marjorie, they do hold religious weeping as a gift parallel to speaking in tongues or writhing in ecstatic visions. The phenomenon, the gift of tears, describes being moved to tears in contemplation or contrition. The Jesuit Dictionary of Spirituality describes the gift of tears as a complex phenomenon consisting of certain spiritual feelings and their concrete manifestation. Holy tears are divided into three categories. Penitential tears, the purifying tears of fear and regret, the tears of love, and the tears of compassion wept for Jesus. St. Monica, Ignatius of Loyola, Catherine of Siena, and Teresa of Avila were all blessed with holy weeping. In 2015, Pope Francis met with a youth group in Manila and said, In today's world, there's a great lack of capacity of knowing how to cry. Certain realities in life we only see through eyes that are cleansed through our tears. It can be a relatively pointless endeavor to search for scientific origins of religious phenomena. You know, why Why bother trying to fact-check a story about biolocating? But even looking at the origins of emotional weeping leads into murky territories. Benjamin Perry's book, Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter, is a good survey of the culture and the history of crying, but the section on tears in scientific fields is particularly appealing to me. They note that there is virtually no funding into research of emotional crying, so the science of emotional crying still eludes us. Even this most primary of human instincts and emotions, we simply cannot say with precision why it happens. Perry writes, quote, Despite the broad and long-standing agreement between medicine and popular science, researchers have been largely unable to find evidence that crying is good for physical health, or that inhibiting tears is damaging. Reliably provoking emotional tears in laboratories is more difficult than stimulating other biological processes such as sweating or salvation. Indeed, the laboratory setting itself may be part of the problem. Being invited to weep under researchers patient gaze may itself hinder real emotion. Most researchers study emotional crying, show participants a sad film, and cross their fingers that it's sad enough, unquote. In the essay Tears and Screaming, Weeping in the Spirituality of Marjorie Kemp, Santa Baracharzi writes that, quote, Marjorie's weeping seems to spring from several different, though overlapping, perceptions within her. These can be roughly classified as penitence for her own sins, penitence for the sins of the world, and intense compassion for the sufferings of Christ, unquote. 
These, incidentally, directly line up with the motivations outlined by the Jesuits in the definition of holy tears. Bhattacharji continues, In addition, there are two other motivations that are perhaps distinctive to Marjorie. She often perceives the life of Christ through the ordinary events and people around her, which disclose Christ to her as the underlying reality of all human life, and she's a personal message to be a sign or a mirror for others, to call them to a similar repentance and awareness of Christ. Unquote. Marjorie writes, again in the third person, her weeping was so plentiful and so continuous that many people thought that she could weep or stop weeping at will. And therefore many people said that she was a false play actor. I often think about the sexism around weepiness, regarding it as something reserved for women and children, but I think somehow Marjorie surpasses these entirely. In her weeping, she became frightening, irritating, inhuman. Imagine crying for 15 years. What kind of creature would you look like after all that time? If we return to the science of tears briefly, it should be noted that tears have physical differences. Perhaps you've noticed this, as I have. While my eyes might water benignly from the wind, or I might cry a little at a song, the tears that come from big emotions, from my own endless well, like Marjorie's, they feel different. They're hot. They hurt. My eyes sting and are are bright red afterwards. The chemical makeup of emotional tears differs enormously from that of basal or reflex tears, the tears that lubricate our eyes or attempt to clear irritants. But because of the distinct lack of research into emotional crying, there are only proposals and theories as to why this is. In the crying book, Heather Christie writes that, quote, it's possible that the higher protein content in emotional tears evolve because it increases their viscosity, slows the rate at which they fall, increasing the chance that they will be seen and their message received, unquote. Babies cry to, to notify urgently and immediately of their needs or to elicit comfort. People cry and it notifies people around them that something is wrong. If my tears are more viscous, when I am upset, they fall slower. They demand attention. They and I want to be seen. Several years ago, my friend Eleanor, then working at the VNA, sent me pictures from an exhibition of the Dutch ceramicist Caroline Smit. Eleanor and I were playing our infrequent text catch-up between countries, her talking about what was on at work and the bits and pieces of her life, while I showed her the work my students had been doing and introduced her to all the animals living in my house. Truthfully, I sometimes struggle to talk about Eleanor, my first friend in London and the one I miss the most desperately. I look up Caroline Smith later on Eleanor's recommendation and laugh. How unlikely it feels that this work would not have found me earlier. Smith makes elaborate ceramic sculptures of animals, of religious scenes, of myths. They are little too ornate bordering on grotesque and their their shininess makes me feel a little bit sick. In them there are the languages of of reliquaries and wonder commerce, the strange, the spectacular, the overlaps of the natural and the divine. I like the lambs with the blood pouring out of them in big fat drops. 
I like the Christs, the jewel-encrusted limbs, the animals bent and inverted, their bodies twisting and wailing. A 2010 piece called Tranen, literally tears in English, pulls at me in particular. It is one in a series of tear sculptures, women and animals with their eyes cast towards heaven as cascades of pearl-like tears pour forth from them, engulfing their figures. Their tears leak out of these figures' eyes, their mouths and their pores at incredible volumes, subsuming their figures entirely. They do not drown in tears, but the tears have made them completely, remade them into a different shape. In Tranen, a naked woman kneels, fallen and stares desperately at the sky, offering up her hands. Her tears pour out, thick and pearlescent, pooling between her legs, slipping between her fingers. She is made monstrous and otherworldly in her weeping. It makes me think of the Gibran line, a pearl is a temple built by pain around a grain of sand. What longing built our bodies and around what grains? When I look at Smith's tear sculptures, I think first of the agony of Mary Magdalene, the long hair is a sure giveaway, as is the anguish and also the grief, I suppose. The Magdalene is a figure always lamenting. I think then maybe St. Agnes also. Agnes, who sent to a brothel and whose hair grew long and cocooning her body so that she could not be touched. And then I think maybe Marjorie Kemp. Not yet a saint, but someone who cried unceasingly in a way that made her something other than human. I think it's mostly for the drama, but Psalm 42 has always been my favorite passage. And next to a few verses and songs, it's usually the only part of the Bible I can recite by heart always a failure to all my religion teachers past. It says, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? Ten years ago, I cut all the letters to Psalm 42 out of gauzy, transparent paper and hung it on the walls at St. Martin's, and I embroidered the passage in full onto the velvet of chair cushions, and my classmates looked on, politely puzzled and unaffected. Charon writes, The whole of Christianity is mankind's fit of crying, of which only salty and bitter traces are now left to us. And I think of Fiona Apple, the tulip in a cup, the teardrops that season every plate. It would be fair to say that I have always been a crier. I spent the years of my life in London crying so regularly, so publicly, so profoundly, that it became what I would call a defining feature of my presence in any room. I cried everywhere, all the time. Sometimes quiet, sometimes great heaving sobs that would wake my roommate up in the night. I had a panic attack at a bus stop in King's Cross once where I cried so hard I threw up. I don't know exactly the sequence of events. I think an argument set the whole thing off, but I remember a man and a woman kneeling in front of me asking if I was okay. I remember an ambulance being called where the very kind EMT handed me a cloth to wipe some of the mascara from my face. I remember another time crying at a bus stop on Pentonville Road at maybe two or three in the morning, crying so, so intensely and, and spectacularly, I guess that a bus on a different route pulled up to the bench the driver could hand me a pack of tissues through the window. 
It's hard to say specifically what would bring on the bouts of tears. My thoughts would circle enough to become knotted, tangled. I wept from being angry, from being tired, from being lonely, from being lovesick. I wept often from being so lost in whatever thought I was having that I couldn't quite find the exit. I remember laughing that an emergency psychiatrist was named Ariadne. She talked to me over the phone so I could barely choke out responses through sobs. Often I would cry for hours. And this sounds like an exaggeration. It was physical, literal, hours of crying. <laughs> Six or seven uninterrupted, often. An NHS doctor would tell me that I lacked any capacity to self-soothe and would become stuck into loops where I would become so exhausted and couldn't physically continue. I would cry so hard that I would have to call off sick from my job and my eyes would swell shut. I would I would cry so hard that my ribs would hurt from sobbing and every breath would be agonizing for days after. One night at the flat in Kentish Town, I can remember being in a crying fit when I had someone with me and I can remember the concern on his face as the tears continued unabated well into the morning. I don't really remember how the night started or ended. We were in a bar in Camden and then I was crying and then we were at my house and then he was sitting on my couch and watching as I cried straight through the night. I think it was probably the first time I let someone else watch me cry. And mostly I remember his frown, his confusion. He never offered any comfort at all, which was lucky, I suppose, as it couldn't have reached me. I sobbed through my first exam in graduate school. <laughs> I stood in front of a group of professors, some of whom I had never met, and took them around a room where I had installed a semester's worth of work and had to say, I'm very sorry, but I am so tired and I just cannot stop. I answered their questions between heaving breaths. Every art piece was explained through tears, adorned with tears. I had put dried Job's tears in addition one of the pieces, little poetry made ridiculous by my hysterical presentation. I didn't cry when my dad died. Or I did, but not really for the death of it. I cried for my tiredness and for the unbearable unfairness of it all. I cried because it was unfair that I had to deal with it there. It was unfair that my sister was not there and had to deal with it differently. When I'm overcome now, it's usually it books, sometimes at songs, often in anger. I cried all morning <laughs> through a class I took online. I sobbed when I lost my job, a heartbreak I didn't know how to suffer. And I sobbed in anger at the total indifference of it, that I could cry as much as I wanted and it made no difference at all. I cry often lost in remembering things and I cry on my couch or driving my car. At least physically, I cry throughout most of the day. I have a malformed tear duct in one of my eyes that leaks tears almost constantly. My eyes water terribly at any drop in temperature or with a gust of wind. I don't, I don't really know what expression my face makes when I walk outside, but people will often stop and ask me, are you okay? And gesture to my tears. I sit in the optometrist's office and she gives me a different brand of eye drops to try. St. Francis of Assisi is said to have cried so much and so often that they went blind. I think of them as I gently press warm compresses to my eyelids. And Marjorie Kemp, I wonder, how were her eyes? Marjorie ends her autobiography with defense of her tears. She says, As for my crying, 
sobbing and my weeping, Lord God Almighty, as surely as you know what scorns, what shames, what despites and what reproofs I have had for it, and as surely as it is not in my power to weep either loud or still or for any devotion nor for any sweetness, but only through the gift of the Holy Ghost, so surely, Lord, excuse me before all this world. Marjorie crossed the continents, wailing and tear-soaked. I sit in my car and listen to have one on me and choke into my hands. Ten years ago, I sob into the freezing London air and flinch at the hand placed in my hair to comfort me, wondering when crying became so inevitable, I stopped being embarrassed by it. Benjamin Perry writes, quote, Consider someone who cries every day. The frequency of their tears tells you very little. Are their daily tears a healthy coping mechanism that helps them process the pain they carry and the stress of the world? Or are they crying because they're absolutely overwhelmed and on the brink of total collapse? Further complicating this matter is the fact that at different points in our lives, or even a month, we may be both of these people, unquote. A few days ago, I stood in the, the center gallery of the museum where I work, and I talked to my coworker about teaching and about working with kids. She says that teaching seems impossible to her. Dealing with children that aren't hers seems impossible. And I end up telling a story about how when I was teaching full time, I would almost always go home and have a have a good cry to get it all out at the end of the day. You know, after absorbing other people's feelings for five or six hours straight, sitting on my couch and crying for 40 minutes was the only way I could like get up and have my own thoughts. My coworker asked me, do you have a spiritual practice? Do you meditate or pray or anything to help with that? And I say, honestly, I mostly just get it all out through tears. I think about crying and I think about Marjorie Kemp and I think about the line from Hound of Heaven. Heaven and I wept together and its sweet tears were salt with mortal wine. I think of Tron and I think of the tears of the saints. No matter what we say, he writes... The end of all sadness is a swoon into divinity. This is all miracles are strange. My name is Liz Hamilton. You can find me on social media under my name. Uh, my theme song is an altered version of an 1888 wax cylinder recording of Handel's Israel in Egypt, one of the earliest known recordings of the human voice. In this episode, I reference Tears and Saints by Emile Charon, The Crying Book by Heather Christie, Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter by Benjamin Perry, or Interior Castles by Teresa of Avila, The Book of Marjorie Kemp, Psalm 42, After Lives of the Saints by Colin Dickey, which I've referenced before and will undoubtedly reference again, um, the song Valentine by Fiona Apple, Francis Thompson's Hound of Heaven, and the essay Tears and Screaming, Weeping, and the Spirituality of Marjorie Kemp by Santa Bhattacharji, which appears in the book Holy Tears, Weeping in the Religious Imagination. I really desperately wanted to include some passages uh, from the novel Marjorie Kemp by Robert Gluck, in which he compares his obsessive and fruitless love for someone to Marjorie's love for Jesus, but I just couldn't fit it in. <laughs> I couldn't fit it into this episode, I guess. Um, I enjoyed the book immensely. It's extremely sexual and explicit and lyrical, you know, certainly not for everyone, but probably for quite a few of my listeners. Um, Oh, I also wanted to say that, like, I tried desperately hard to find the correct pronunciation of Emile Chiron's last name, and I am still not sure that I found it. <laughs> I found, like, um, I think four or five totally different pronunciations, uh, and if I'm wrong, I really apologize. Um, I just tried to go with the one that most people with my accent seem to be using. 
Um, if you'd like to read notes or see images from All Miracle Strange, like uh, Caroline Smith sculptures, you can sign up for my Substack. I think if you search either my name or All Miracles Are Strange, you'll find it. Um, special thanks to Leshy and Eleanor, who have signed up for the $10 tier of my Patreon. Thank you to everyone also who supports me through Patreon and Substack. Um, your support really is invaluable to my process, and I'm really grateful. As a final reminder, also, we still, we, we continue to have a responsibility to stand up for our neighbors in Palestine during their ongoing genocide. If you are in the United States, your responsibility is doubled, tripled. So call your representatives, show up when and where you can, talk to your friends, your family. Ceasefire now. Free Palestine. Thank you.